This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Returning to Eden, a field guide for the spiritual journey. Returning to Eden is a book by Heather Hamilton for people who resonate with aspects of Christianity but struggle with the coherence of its claims. After having a mystical experience that shattered her evangelical beliefs, Heather Hamilton found herself on the journey that every true spiritual seeker ultimately takes. The highest truths that set us free are hidden in places that most people are not looking. Returning to Eden re-examines the Bible stories of childhood and opens them up as symbolic maps into the inner world. Stories like Jonah and the Whale, the parting of the Red Sea, Noah's Ark, and the Virgin Birth are illuminated with penetrating depth and intellectual integrity. Faith is no longer a white-knuckled grip on implausible beliefs, but a relaxation into a deep inner knowing. You can purchase Returning to Eden by Heather Hamilton at Amazon.com or at ReturningToEden.com. If the Bible's got you tied in knots If you're burdened with religious thoughts Come grab a drink and join the choir It's Heretic Happy Hour That's right, welcome to Heretic Happy Hour. We are back, baby, and we are continuing this series two, Fab for Florida, part two. Uh, the the adventure continued. Um, <laughs> so we're excited to jump back into it. Um, but first, let's do some introductions. My name is Keith Giles. I am the author of the Jesus Un series, the Sola series, and most recently, Second Cup with Keith. Um, it's uh, based on my podcast, but it's even better. Go check it out on Amazon. And I'm joined by my amazing, fantastic, and frankly, fabulous co-hosts, um, Katie, Shonda, December, and sometimes Matt. Say hello. Hey, everyone. This is Katie Valentine. And- Thank you, Keith. I feel like we are all too fabulous for Florida. I, I feel and that I kind of want a button. Yeah, we need some buttons and t-shirts made. Um, so I'm Katie. I am the host of the Metaphysical Fit Christian Facebook community, where we talk about all things woo. I'm so excited about our guest today, and you're going to hear um, more about her. But this is a good opportunity to tell you all that I'm the co-editor of a book called Transbiblical. And it's under contract. The guest is a contributor um, to this book today. So any of you who want to get like previews, updates about the book, um, we've created uh, a little list so you can sign up to be on that. You can, we may have a launch team, we may not, but at least you'll get all the information about that when it comes out. It won't come out for a little while. So you have plenty of time. I'll make sure that that link goes into uh, the show notes. What's up, everybody? It's your girl, December Rose. And I'm the author of The Church Can Go to Hell. I'm a wife. Mother motivator. <laughs> I'm an author, of course, spoken word artist, and I consider myself to be a uniquely exquisite vibe, and I'm so glad that you're listening. I am Shonda. You can find my uh, my Joy and Justice newsletter on Substack. I am thrilled about the conversation uh, we're having today. And I'm sometimes Matt here. Uh, here sometimes, well, I'm always here, but I'm sometimes <laughs> allowed Not to always. speak. Well, not all, well. He's most of present, the time. but present, but in my cubicle. Um, no, excited, <laughs> excited for another episode of the Two Fab uh, for Florida series. And before we get into everything, again, just want to remind folks that if you love this show, and who doesn't? I can think of a few people, but most of you love it. If you have a, a few extra dollars sitting around uh, at the end of the month, and you want to support the show, that would be fantastic. It would be Two Fab. For Florida, if you went over to patreon.com slash heretic happy hour and started supporting this show, you'll unlock uh, a bonus podcast that we do. Uh, you'll unlock some other goodies, um, over 200, I believe. So head on over there today. And I believe you get your sins washed away That's or right. the, the remission of sins, absolution yes. of sins, whatever you want to call yes. it. So that's another little perk of, of joining us over there. Nice. All right, y'all. Push pause. Go sign up for Patreon. And then when you come back, uh, we have not only a heretic, but a co-host. As I mentioned, this is a contributor to Transbiblical. Uh, Wonderful story. Um, She really is too fabulous for Florida. So you're going to absolutely love this uh, conversation. It's the heretic of the week. Hi, I'm Jada Calloway. And some people think I'm a heretic. Hi, Jada. Hey, Jada. Welcome. 
Uh, we're so glad you're here because you really are just too fab for Florida. And um, you were a guest that came to mind for me because I just have the um, awesome privilege of getting to know you a little bit in, uh, in our collegial New Testament work together. And uh, so I've gotten to read your scholarship. And, you know, in your work, you talk about your own trans experience. So just curious if you can tell us a little bit about your spiritual background and how you got to where you are right now. Um, yeah, so I was raised Pentecostal, uh, specifically the Assemblies of God. Um, and to give you a sense of how much I was raised Pentecostal, all four of my grandparents were ordained in the Assemblies of God Church. Um, we went to church three times a week, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. Um, and so uh, it was deeply ingrained in me from like probably you know, in the womb of sort of the Pentecostal tradition. Um, as I grew and developed, um, I guess there's two things that kind of led me to getting to where I am now. One is um, I was always really questioning a lot of things. I was a very much a questioning Christian. I believed everything that was told me. And then I would try to square it, square it into the world, and it didn't always fit. And so I would try to find ways to figure out how all these things could fit. I did figure out when I was really young that I saw the world very differently than everybody did around me. Um, and it wasn't always sure why, but I knew I just had a different perspective on things in that when I asked a lot of questions, a lot of people were very tolerant of my questions, which was very nice especially my family. Um, but uh, my questions got persistently hard. I was known as sort of a very faithful yet very doubting person. So in my youth group uh, as a teenager, where I was very active, um, the youth pastor once described me as someone for whom God could come down in a booming voice and like, this you know huge like light show. Tell me a prophecy that I'm supposed to tell everybody else, and I'd say, wait a second, where's your ID? Um, right. Uh, so I just had that layer of questioning all the time. When I got to college, I took in my first semester, first year as a first year student, an intro Bible class because I thought I know the Bible, easy A, um, <laughs> and. The professor was a woman named April DeConnick, who's now at Rice University, and she's a Gospel of Thomas specialist. And she like totally blew my mind, uh, introducing me to sort of historical critical methods, sort of traditional in the field. Um, and I realized I did not know nearly as much as I thought I did. And then I tried to spend the rest of my life trying to figure out how much I did not know. Um, I continued taking classes. I took a class on sex, gender, and Christianity, and the feminist biblical criticism also kind of blew my mind. There was no queer theory, unfortunately. Um, but uh, whenever I taught the same class 10 years later at the same institution, which was my first job inside of grad school, I infused a lot of queer theory into it. Um, and that got me partly where I am now. The thing is, whenever... Since I finished college in 2003, this is my age, um, the Bible became an intellectual puzzle for me. It was like a little thing to figure out. And I was kind of able to distance myself from it due to the historical critical method. Right. However, ever since I was my earliest memory, I also knew about something else about me that nobody else knew. And that was, even though I was assigned male at birth, I knew I was a girl. I don't know how I knew. I just knew. And my earliest memories are between Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon, when my parents were deep into nap mode, I would sneak into my sister's room and change my clothes into her clothes and feel normal for a moment. But I knew I was doing something I wasn't supposed to do. And then I would change back before they woke up. One day I had a friend over from church and I did what I did every Sunday afternoon and I invited him to do the same thing. And he said, I looked silly. And it was the first time in my life I realized that 
oh my goodness, all these people we call boys don't desperately want to be girls? That's weird. This is the first time this, I just assumed everybody called a boy was just someone who desperately wanted to be a girl. So that kind of changed my life. I realized I had to hide. I couldn't tell everybody. Um, and so I didn't do that in front of another person until I came out to my partner two years ago. Um, by the time I had developed what we call gender dysphoria around the age 10 and 11, so I always cross-identified, but it didn't bother me until I was 10 or 11, and I started praying every night for God to turn me into a girl by the next day. It didn't happen. Um, I learned the name for what I was from watching Maury Povich on daytime television. Oh, my. Um, and or he may I, not be the most pastoral presence like, to kind of guide you into that. <laughs> we had role models yeah. back then. Right. There was nobody. If you wanted to see a trans person on television, you had to go to Jerry Springer or Maury Povich or something yeah. like that. And I saw myself reflected at myself for the first time in my life. And it was scary. Um, I thought, oh, my God, that's who I am and what I am. And I said, oh, shit, that's who I am. <laughs> um, and I tried to come out of the closet several times as a teenager. It never came out. I, I never could quite do it. There were some opportunities where I felt like I was about to do it, and it never happened. And by the time well, I and got back then, Yeah, and back then, I, I don't know if this is, feels relevant to you. There was so much focus on sexual orientation, but not on gender identity. So right. like, even how to come out as a trans person hasn't been that clear. I didn't know what to say. And also I was confused yeah. by the fact that I was attracted to women. So there's sort of that heteronormativity that impeded me. Uh, I'm like, well, I'm attracted to women. And so why, if I came out as a woman, then I wouldn't be able to be who I want to be with. So it was that really, it was a big tangled web of difficulty. I didn't know what to do with it. Um, by the time I got to college, I was in full suppression mode. I knew exactly what I was. And I said, I was never, ever going to let anybody else know. And then a few years ago, a few events in my life happened that kind of just broke me. And uh, the floodgates came open. And one night I couldn't hold it back. It came up almost like vomit. I'm sorry, that's the word I have for it. I grabbed my partner. I said, we need to go to the other room away from the kids. And it all came out all at once. And I felt bad for them um, that um, they were like getting all this dumped on. That was a repression of probably at least 30 years. And we slowly worked on a plan for me to transition. Um, and then I finally came out to my parents in January of 2022. Pentecostal, Assemblies of God, faithful. Still going to church three times a week? Well, uh, during COVID, that kind of changed their at plans. And then my dad is in his 80s. My mom's in her 70s. They don't always go for health reasons. Um, but they still go to the same church I grew up in. They moved so they can be closer to their church. Wow. Um, so uh, I came out to my parents. One of the first questions they asked me was, well, how does this impact how you read the Bible? And wow. I said, well, to be honest, it used to be an intellectual puzzle for me, but now it resonates more deeply than it ever has in my entire life. And my dad just turned to me and said, huh, that makes sense, because mm -hmm. the Holy Spirit cannot speak to you if you are repressing your own spirit. Wow. Wow. So here what I am. What a thoughtful response. Mm. Beautiful. Yeah. But did that surprise you, that that, that was their response? <laughs> it did. Um, yeah. I didn't know how my parents would respond. I don't, I didn't know if, uh, a lot of my family I would never see again. I didn't know if they just need to take a few months off for me to like get used to the idea. But at the time they were coming to my house every week to see my kids once a week. I told them on a Thursday, they were scheduled to come back the next Monday and I said, okay, um, I'll see you whenever you feel like coming back. And they said, no, we'll see you Monday. Hmm. And I came out to them as my old self, although I had been dressing androgynously for several months. Um, and when they came the next Tuesday, they saw me as Jada. 
mm. for the first time. Well, is there anybody in your circle that you told or expressed yourself to and they were like, I knew that. You didn't tell me nothing. Is there anybody, you know, because some people, they they come out, if you want to say that, and then their family would be like, girl, I knew that when was five or something like that. Was there anybody in your circle, <laughs> you know, that, um, you know, that said, you know, and I'll, I'll, let me say this real quick. And I know everything on the internet lives forever. So, Lord, let me tell my son in advance. I apologize if mommy is wrong about you. But my <laughs> my son at two or three years old had some tendencies about him. And I just looked at my baby and I said, hmm, he might be a flower. And I just kept on. That's why I say <laughs> my mom said that. She's like, that baby is a flower. And I said, oh, he might be a flower. I said, well, OK, I, whatever. So I would not be surprised. At whatever my son bring home to me, I just have made up my mind to accept that because he seems to he's so creative and he's so fluid and he's so everything. He want to paint his nails. He want to wear earrings. And then he want to then he'll say, but I don't like pink. That's for girls. So he is like he go back and forth with different things he want to do. And so I just look at him and I say, whatever he decide he's going to do, I'm going to be supportive of him because I could tell he's working himself out. And he ain't nothing but 10. But I've seen different things in him when he was three. So mm-hmm. in my mind, a lot of parents be in denial about what, what they see in their children. Because my son was three when I looked at him and said, he might be a flower, this one. And so I just, I'm just i asking you, um, is there anybody in your life that was like, you ain't surprised to be with nothing? You know, is there anybody in your world that was like, okay, that's not new for me. Thank you for telling me, but I knew that about you. <laughs> uh, I, two things. Um, one, absolutely not. Uh, people, I... <laughs> I masked extremely well. Once I figured out what I was, I figured out how to prevent people from realizing what I was. Um, and so I was really good at theater growing up because I got to pretend I was someone else for just a little bit. Yeah. Um, and I was used to acting a role because I acted a role every day. Um, and while there were signs and sometimes I did intentionally drop them to see who would pick them up. Nobody did. Um, here's, there are some clues in retrospect. Um, and like whenever I was a kid, my mom said, my mom really hated, um, oh, that guy in Colorado Springs, the Dr. Dobson, right, who was very like into. I like it that your Pentecostal mom was suspicious of Dobson. She's also a Christian counselor, and so mm. she had some sort of psychological training, and she's yeah. like, he's wrong. She could see the damage, yeah. Um, and so she's like, there are no girls' toys, there are no boys' toys, and so she let me play with whatever I wanted. Mm. Um, and since I have an older sister, there were girls' toys around all the time, and they did buy me just boys' toys, but I would play with, you know, my He-Man and Barbie together <laughs> and <laughs> see no d- problem with that. Uh, you know, in the 1980s, Legos were not gendered yet. Um, so I mean, there they, was they were just they it. were just traps for parents at the time to yeah. step yeah. the toe on. on the- it, um, <laughs> yeah, I would play dress up with my sister and feel there was nothing in my parents didn't bleak an eye. Um, however, once I started school, I noticed there was a difference in the house. I was. Um, if I showed a picture of you when I was three or four, I had long, golden, curly, beautiful hair. It was cut when I went to school. Um, when I was, uh, whenever I was at school, it was made fairly clear to me that I was supposed to hang out with boys. Um, and I did my best to do what I was supposed to do. Very overactive, super ego, right? <laughs> um, and so there are these things that, you know, before the age of five, I was allowed a lot more gender freedom um, than later. Second point here. Um, well, actually, fast forward to the 90s when people were so worried about sexual orientation in conservative Christian communities and trans things were just not on anybody's radar. Um, I remember a few times... Um, my father at the time, and he's grown and developed in his views of things, um, would stop in the car we'd be driving somewhere and just turn. It's like, you know, two men together, are that's just disgusting. I just Mm. can't 
imagine how gross that would be. And I, I for, for a few times, I just kind of took it. I'm like, is he reading into me? I had a few friends wondering if I was gay because I actually respected women. Um, you know? <laughs> That's uh, all it takes. <laughs> yeah. It's These like, days. there's something wrong with you. Um, and so there are people who maybe suspect I was gay. Nobody suspected I was trans. And, you know, I came out to a few people saying, well, I am gay because I like women and wait for them to make the connection. Um, but, so there were these moments and eventually I told my dad once, I said, we shouldn't make legislation based on things that disgust you. Um, right. And I don't think he ever brought it up again. And now he has a very different view of LGBTQ people than he did in the 1990s. A lot of people I know have grown on that issue, and I don't want to pin him down on that now with the podcast. Mm -hmm. Second thing, the, the straw that broke the camel's back for me in coming out was my child. My child was expressing things on the outside that I never dared express in my life, that I felt on the inside. So one of my kids, I have three, um, and they're all assigned male at birth. One of my kids is very gender non-conforming, like you were saying, a flower. Lo one birthday was the Incredible Hulk and Unicorns. <laughs> that was the theme. Um, I'd like to see pictures from that because that sounds <laughs> awesome. Yeah, very um, colorful. Um, a lot of people misgender him, and he just politely corrects them, says, no, I'm a boy, um, but likes to wear sequins and hearts and unicorns and pink glitter. and all those things. And um, people misgender my kids a lot because they don't like their haircut. They like having long hair. My oldest child has very long hair, and that's the only gender nonconforming thing about him. He is very adamant that he's not a girl and that he's a boy, and that's fine. Um, and the middle child is just like, we'll correct you once if you persist and go, eh, whatever. Um, <laughs> it doesn't matter. It's not that important. Um, but at one point, I was getting pressure from people to make him conform. They turned to me. And at that time, I was very much like I was living out the most bland, you know, cishet white male life and they're like you need to get him to conform and they said i won't say who said this but they said to me you know it's okay to let people play around and play dress up for a while but once they start school they must conform hmm. and my i started having flashbacks you know it's like oh my god this is what happened to me. And I made a sort of uh, a vow to myself right there. I'm not going to let that happen to my child, what happened to me. And so I said, I basically said, that's not going to happen. And wait, you wait a few months. And a few weeks later is when I came out to my partner. And then I started transitioning. And now people are like, oh, well, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's taken a lot of the pressure off. Him. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And you know, as you're as you're reflecting on these things, and as you're sharing what I I found a surprising response from your parents, I find myself thinking about maybe eight years ago. My friend Jose and I were talking, and we were both having a really hard time. He was doing a lot of work around LGBTQ inclusion in the Latino Church. I was working on it in the Asian Pacific Islander church and his word of encouragement to me was Shonda remember we're never going to get the fundamentalists but we're going to get the Pentecostals <laughs> because they're going to engage with LGBTQ Christians and they believe in the Holy Spirit and at a certain point when they have to choose between the way they've been taught to read the Bible and what the Holy Spirit is telling them, they're going to choose the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. And it's been something I've come back to a lot in in my own work. So I think I ho I'm going to make sure Jose listens to this because it's going to be a confirmation of what he uh, said as a word of encouragement to both of us. So I really, I really appreciate that. I wanted to ask in 
In the article you wrote for Transbiblical, a forthcoming book that I think Katie's mentioned before because she's one of the editors on it and we're really excited about it. Um, you say in, in your article, queer people are supposed to be melancholy and trans people are supposed to feel the psychological pain called dysphoria. In this context, trans hope, joy, and euphoria are resistance. They are revolutionary. I'm, I'm such a fan of that framework. I wonder if you would be willing to tell us more about this joy and revolution. Um, yeah, and I'm practically crying from the last discussion here. So this is kind of awkward to talk about joy. Um, uh, They're not unconnected. No. <laughs> um, it's because the deepest night and the joy comes in the morning, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so this is a frustration that I had not only partly with broader society and partly with queer theory itself. And much of queer theory developed in the 1990s and it came out of the AIDS crisis. And so I totally understand why there's so much pain, rage, and melancholy in such in some of the sort of first wave, if we can call it, queer theory. And I understand where that comes from. And I don't want to forget where that comes from. Um, and on the other hand, we have society as a whole, um, where over 30 states are telling me I'm not welcome. Um, and I am not directly attending the Society of Biblical Literature this year for my safety. Um, I'm going to try to zoom in. <laughs> um, and... I just, it's been a really difficult 18 months, not for my personal transition, but for the way society's treating me and people like me. Not really me directly. My day-to-day life, I'm fine. It's when I read the news, <laughs> like I feel my heart break every day. Um, later in the article, I say I die daily, right? Um, and all trans people feel like we die daily. On the other hand, while I am a DSM-5 category of gender dysphoria, I have never felt happier in my life as I do now. Like, I feel like, you know, I always tell people I'm a late bloomer because I don't feel like I even started living until my 40s, right? Before I was just surviving, but now I'm actually living. And there's a difference. Um even when I was a teenager, people looked at me and said, why are you so serious all the time? Why don't you ever smile? I had a former colleague uh, at another university who said before my transition, they didn't know I had the ability to smile. They didn't just mm. assume my face didn't do that. They had never seen me smile. And so people see me smile every day. People who have known me from before and now, and now tell me that I'm such a different person. Person, that my eyes glisten, that before my eyes were dead, and now they're alive. Mm. And so this hope, this joy, this euphoria is real. It's felt deep inside. And I stand in a world that tells me, please go back in the closet. I see in a world that says, please go back to being miserable because we don't like it when you succeed. And I stand back and I smile and say, this is the happiest I have ever been. My joy is strategic. It's real, but it's strategic. My joy and my euphoria and my hope is not naive because I know what faces me every day. But to have hope when you didn't have hope before, it's amazing. And this is where sort of the... Um, Jose Munoz's sort of uh, framework of the horizon of queerness, a horizon of hope. It's always just, just out of reach, right? And you're always striving towards it. Actually has been very encouraging to me to always see that that is just on the horizon. Um, and it keeps me going. Um, I was going to talk about this with a different point, but I kind of see my role in all of this in my scholarship from the viewpoint of Italo Calvino's Invisible Cities. So if you look at that passage, there's a footnote nearby where I quote this at length 
and I'd just like to share this. Um, I took a utopian literature class as an undergrad, and this was assigned, and it's just stuck in my head for a couple decades, and I can't let go of this. Um, and so at the very last paragraph of the book, the inferno of the living is not something that will be. If there is one, it is what is already here, the inferno where we live every day that we form by being together. There are two ways to escape suffering it. The first is easy for many, accept the inferno and become such a part of it that you can no longer see it. The second is risky and demands constant vigilance and apprehension. Seek and learn to recognize who and what in the midst of the inferno are not inferno and then make them endure, give them space. I feel like my job as a trans and queer person is to give other trans and queer people space because they feel like they have no place anymore. And that is where the strategic hope in this inferno of anti-trans sentiment and legislation, um, I think it's going to be, it's impactful. They're, I'm giving people the place that I never had. That's so deep. And I love that. I never thought of joy as resistance, but in this context, it makes, it makes a perfect sense. And also, I didn't realize until this moment that, and I had to look it up too while you're talking, but I didn't realize until at this moment that euphoria is the antonym to this mm-hmm. 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 And um, that your, your your happiness and your joy and your hope is antagonizing and an antagonist, an active and intentional antagonist to uh, the stereotypes and the, the sadness and the people wanting to conform and push you and squish you into a box. And I love that being intentional about your joy. And one thing you mentioned um, in your work is that trans people have two closets to come out of. Can you elaborate on what those two closets are? Are there any more closets? This is not something in writing, but this is something I've talked about uh, to people uh but I've never written this down in my work. Um, So on the one hand, queer people are always coming out of the closet to somebody. There's always someone who doesn't know or doesn't believe that this is me until they see me or until I confirm it directly. Um, And so I feel like there is the first closet that everybody's very much aware of where people assume that you're cisgendered and heterosexual and then you have to tell people that you are not one or both of those things, right? But as trans people transition, there's a period in that transition where it's very awkward. Some of us call it the chrysalis stage, where it's all gooey. And we're not quite one thing or the other. It's very... Um, the technical term for this is gender fuck, uh, where people look at you and they're like, are you a boy or a girl? Um, and, you know, people have come up with very clever responses to that. Some people answer genuinely um, and some people are like, I'm, a, you know, I'm really a dragon or something like that. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, it's just like, what does it matter? I'm chaos and um, embodied. What do you... Um, But there's a point in a transition, and for different trans people, it's different, um, where many of us uh, start what we, I I don't like the term, but what a lot of people call passing. Um, I think this is an incorrect term because we're just being accepted for who we really are. Um, And we're not trying to pretend we're something else. I feel like I was passing as a man for most of my life, and now I'm genuinely out there as a woman. but when you get to a certain point into your transition, people stop seeing the ambiguity and they start seeing you as just the other gender. And so they don't know that you're trans anymore. So do you tell them? Do you reveal yourself as someone who has had a transition? Or do you just make, let them assume that you are cisgendered, whatever your gender identity is? Right? And so that's the second closet. Do you come out of the closet as someone who had lived their earlier life as a different gender? Because they can't see it anymore. Well, a lot of 
transphobic people say you can always tell, you can sometimes tell. Right, you can always tell. You That's are right. missing the people you can't tell. Uh-huh. Right? Um, a lot of it's the eye of the beholder, how often you've been around trans people, you might be able to tell different, you know, easier than others. But in my small town where I live, most people don't know, unless they knew me from before. It don't matter if you're in a small town or big town. I don't think you could always tell. I know a lot of Black women accused of being trans, and they're not. They just manage, what, what people call manage. They, you know, that that's usually used in a derogatory term, but you know what I mean. They're, you know, yeah. and I'm like, no, this is, this is who I am, or this is, you know, they get accused of that. So some people think they could tell, and they, the ones that they think are, are not, and the ones that think that they aren't, are. <laughs> so right. in my opinion about that is, I don't, I, in my personal opinion, but this is as someone who's not trans, so you know, take it with a grain of salt. In my personal opinion, it would be on a need to know basis. I wouldn't just tell everybody, you know, that if they needed to know, as in if I was going to be in an intimate situation or for some reason, they, then they could know. Otherwise, no. But then again, that this is someone who's not trans and someone who hasn't had that experience. So what do I know? <laughs> but in my mind, that's not everybody's business. <laughs> You know, it's not, but there's a lot of facets to this. On the one hand, sometimes our safety is dependent upon how well people cannot tell. All right. But like you said, uh, gender policing does not just impact trans people. It impacts masculine women, feminine men, um, and, uh, you know, non-binary people who may not uh be trans or just people who are appear gender ambiguous um and just on your point uh, a lot of transness has been racialized um to the because ideal types of masculinity and femininity are also racialized and come from you know sort of euro-american euro-american whiteness and so um it's a different very different uh thing and uh, so it, it, I think more, um, especially women uh, who, of color, uh, get flagged as possibly trans more than white women do. Um, but white women do too, especially if, you know, they have short hair and, um, or... Yeah, they look um, kind of tomboyish. Yeah, right? <laughs> um, so it's, it's, it's a complicated issue in that sense. On the other hand, I have in the back of my head uh, my safety that I can't be announcing I'm trans everywhere I go. Um, I, ha- I have a funny story. I was at the skating rink and this kid comes up to me and says, what are your pronouns? And I'm, I told them and I'm like, wait a second. I turned to my partner. I'm like, I thought you said I was passing. They're like, look at what you're wearing. I look down and I'm wearing like a trans flag shirt. I'm like, <laughs> oh yeah, I'm advertising today. Like you got a sign on. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, there was that. So, and that kid actually was trans. Um, wow. So, sometimes I have to be visible just to ha- so people can see people who yeah. are like them. Right. I had a student in one of my classes. Most of my students, I don't talk about the fact I'm trans in my classes. I just say, hey, my name's Dr. Calloway. My pronouns are she, her. I don't talk about that. They weren't always she, her. Right. At least on the outside. Um, And I had one day I walked into my classroom, first day of classes. There was a student who was there early. I looked at them. They looked at me and we both went, huh, because we're like, oh, another trans person. Right. Um, and afterwards they said, you're the first trans person I've ever seen in a position of authority. Mm. Wow. Wow. I'm like, I'm just a teacher. <laughs> we don't have that much authority. Look at what they're doing with teaching in classrooms. Right the now. 25 of you, yes, your grades are in my, <laughs> yes. in my uh, sweet hands. Yes. And so where I work, I work in a library. I work the reference desk. Reference desk is in the middle of the floor. It's highly visible. I started my transition at the reference desk, slowly changing day by day, week by week. And people saw me do it publicly. Mm, wow. And now a lot of the queer students hang out in the library where I work. I, That's so. great. That's so great. 
it's very brave too. And it's important to recognize that, you know, um, what you're doing and being public that with that way is helping other people, right. It's helping younger people, um, who are at a place that you were several years ago and, uh, making it a little bit easier for them to kind of be who they are. That's really beautiful. And like I said, I don't actually talk about being trans. I just am there. Yeah. The trans kids clock me immediately. Mm -hmm. They see who I am. And most of the students who are cis, it's not on their radar. Yeah. Well, so, you know, in your work, you emphasize, and this is kind of related to what we're talking about. You, you emphasize the importance of bodies and their sacredness. Um, and, so I'm just curious, could you talk a little bit about what you mean by that, the importance of and the sacredness of bodies, and why is that important? Um, so for me, I'm someone who dissociated from my body for most of my life. Like I look in the mirror, I'm like, that's not me, but it's me, but it's not me, but it's me, right? Uh, it's not what I was supposed to look like. Um, and now I'm like, oh, that's what I'm supposed to look like. Great, right? Um and so, like, for most of my life, I've had a very complicated relationship with my body. And I did listen to your podcast with Melissa Harl Salou and uh, her work on Gospel of Thomas, where the inner outer alignment and misalignment mm -hmm. really mm -hmm. resonated with me. And I read her article on that last year, over, maybe not long after it came out. Um, and um, I was just very sort of coming back to that euphoria, that joy when sort of your soul and your body finally say, Hey, we're in alignment for the first time in over 40 years. You're now one. You're now mm -hmm. whole. Right. Um, it's an extraordinary moment for those of us who've never felt that before. And those of you who feel it all the time may not even notice it because it's just background noise for you. I don't know. I've never been cis. So yeah. uh, I don't know how they, how people whose body and mind align feel until now. Um, but now it's just so joyful. Um, and that's why I was really attracted to the first Corinthians 15 passage of the transformation into your glorified body. Um, and I've been fascinated with this passage forever. Whenever I would teach intro Bible classes and stuff like that, I'd make students do about three passage analyses throughout the semester, really short papers with intense uh, attention to detail of three different passages. It's usually the Tower of Babel, um, usually passages from Hosea, and then 1 Corinthians 15. I never told them why I did 1 Corinthians 15. It was very personal to me. Um, but I had everybody do it, and I refused to analyze the passage myself because I was afraid what it would mean for me. <laughs> um, and then when I came out of the closet, I'm like, it's time to do 1 Corinthians 15, transforming into your glorified body. Um, and it is a body. And while Paul rejects flesh and blood, I embrace it. And so there's not a pure resonance here. Um, for the first time, I embrace it. And I think trans bodies are beautiful in a world that says that we're monsters. Mm. Um, and so I embrace the trans body as the image of God. So one of the transphobic things I hear coming from the biblical world is that we are marring the image of God. And I push back saying no, in the same way, say like Abraham had to circumcise himself to be part of the covenant. I'm doing something. I'm maybe modifying something so that I can be more fully myself and more fully in the image of God. Um, there are many other arguments I come around here. And that's where it actually came from is this idea that trans people are imago Dei in, in the image of God. Uh, yes. I even have a t-shirt that says imago Dei and with the trans flag colors. Beautiful. Um, and so embodiment is something that trans people feel and have, or have different experiences of depending upon if they have started their transition, they're in the middle of their transition, and, or if they have gotten far in their transition. I actually don't believe it's something you can ever complete. 
uh, I believe we're always becoming, always changing, always transforming. It is, there is no end point. It's sort of an asymptote rather. And um, so we have a certain relationship with our body, a hate and then love that comes about. Um, and it's a slow development. And I think this resonates more than just with trans people. Um, and so I, I, I just think that we have a very intensified and focused um, um, relationship with this sort of dissonance with our body and then finally resonance. Hmm. Yeah. And I thank you, Jada. And um, longtime listeners, it's not going to be a surprise to you um, that that's an important topic for me um, and embodiment and some of my work with like enslaved bodies of the, of the ancient world and certainly um, all bodies today. But it, it becomes so easy to spiritualize everything. And just like within Christianity in general, kind of there's a like the body's like the body doesn't really matter. It's really your spirit that matters. But like our bodies are how we experience everything. Um, and so they they have to they, I mean, they have to be intensely important. Um, and it's like on the basis of like different bodies that we discriminate that like society discriminates too. And so I'm just, I'm just kind of thankful. I don't really have a question. I'm just kind of dialoguing and I'm inter- interjecting why I think it's important too. And I love Paul's language in first Corinthians 15. I don't like Paul, most of the parts of Paul, but I like him here. And um, one thing We're, I really like. We about, feel very comfortable with this selectivity. Just yeah. <laughs> <laughs> speak for everyone else. Yeah. You don't have to like everything. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, uh, cause he doesn't, because he talks about you moving not from a physical body to a spiritual body, but from a psychic body to a spiritual body, but it's still a body, right? You're not bodiless when you reach your glorified body. It's still a body. Um, and I think that's something a lot of people forget that you're still a body hmm. um, no matter what. Yeah. yeah. And then um, I think when Paul talks about um, the metamorphosis language in second Corinthians, I think it's chapter three um, that will all be metamorphized. Um, I think he's talking about our bodies and spirits. Like we're all going to look a little different, uh, but it's not bodiless. It's not only soul. It's everything all together. Yeah, I mean, he uses a lot of morph language throughout. I mean, we have metamorph, transmorph, um, um, sumorph, which is one of my favorite, to transform with. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the sumorphosis, I actually think, is probably the clearest in the sort of spiritual and the physical transformation um, that happens uh, throughout. Um, and... Uh, you know, I got on this because my doctoral advisor wrote a book on Paul and he got really into all the morph language. And so it's always been sort of in my back pocket and I didn't really do anything with it, even though I knew it would really resonate with me. And uh, I just left it there until, uh, you know, until the time was right, until the fruit was ready to help, you know, pluck. So this is perfect because it really leads in in some beautiful ways to the next question because you've been already talking about what it looks like to bring some trans uh, interpretation uh, to or, or trans readings to the Bible. And I know a lot of folks are listening and thinking that's great that a really smart Bible scholar knows how to do that. But do you have thoughts on, what trans readings of the Bible are, how it happens. Can anyone do it? How do we bring uh, that wisdom into the way we read the Bible? Well, let me back up a little bit. And, you know, trans readings of the Bible have been happening as long as trans people have been reading the Bible, um, which is a long time. But we haven't always been able to express ourselves in publications, Mm. right? Um, but some of the earliest stuff is done by Justin uh, Sabia Tanis. Uh, and so he's a trans man and he wrote a book called just transgender, something like that. Um, and he, he's more of on the ministry side of things rather than a Bible scholar. Um, and he just goes through the Bible and goes through all these passages about eunuchs 
And then uh, other passages, uh, other later scholars who tried to do trans readings of the Bible, it's about eunuchs and then eunuchs and then eunuchs and then eunuchs. And I'm just sort of like, I don't like talking about eunuchs. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's great if that works for you. But um, when it comes down to it, I think that when you talk about a eunuch, you end up having to talk about genitals. And for and then I get trapped into this sort of cisgender gaze where transition is all about genitals. And it's not. It's about a whole person of which that is one part, but it's not the whole. Um, and it doesn't even represent the whole. Um, and so I, I just don't. I, these passages about eunuchs that kept coming up in sort of the research before was just not doing anything for me. I didn't feel any joy, hope, or anything coming from that. And it didn't resonate really that strongly because, like I said, transition is a, about the whole person. Um, and so the focus on eunuchs just was not doing it. There have been some articles, too, that talked about gender nonconformity in the Bible and, the, and using that under a trans framework. And that actually was kind of a lot more interesting to me. But for me, and I will let, you know, Melissa Harlsalu speak for herself because she's doing sort of a parallel project. But for me, it's about what does what in here resonates with the transgender experience um, and what, in fact, actually is deeply dissonant for a transgender person. What in the Bible makes sort of, you know, like I said, with my my dad, the Bible resonates with me a lot more than it ever has before. When I read the Bible, it's parts of it just kind of light up. Well, let's look at those parts that light up and see why they're lighting up for me. And then those parts that make me feel really nasty and give me an awful feeling in my tummy, why are they doing that for me? And using my tools as a Bible scholar that I've learned throughout the years, blended with my transgender experience and some maybe feminist and queer theories sprinkled in, um, I am trying to develop this sort of transgender hermeneutic, and I call it a hermeneutic of resonance and dissonance. Um, so these passages that light up for me may light up for other people too. I don't know why they light up for you. I know why they light up for me, right? And I can explain why. Um, and because of that, and because I think transgender experience is intersectional and it interrelates with so many other forms of embodiment, then yes, other people who are not necessarily under the trans umbrella could do this if they are sensitive to the community and what we are doing and undergoing and experiencing. Um, on the other hand, uh, a lot of this comes out of extraordinarily deep personal experiences that are hard for me to explain to non-trans people. Um, and so, like I said, 1 Corinthians 15 always has lit up for me, the idea of transformation into a new body. And that's what I've always wanted. Um, maybe not the body Paul was envisioning, but a different body uh, for me. And uh, that's happening right now, right? Paul envisioned it in the future. I'm doing it now. I'm not waiting for the resurrection, um, right? Maybe that will complete it. The asymptote will collapse um, at that point. So there are certain themes that probably would resonate with most trans people, but not necessarily all trans people because we're a very varied lot. Um, Themes of transformation, of course, becoming gender fluidity, or just in fluid embodiment in general that may not be gendered. Um, so one of my upcoming projects I'm working on is reading the Holy Spirit from a trans perspective. And it's called, uh, what do I have it called? The Blowing, Flowing, Flaming Spirit. <laughs> um, the spirit always appears as different elements um, water, air, especially air, because spirit and air are the same word, wind, um, and fire, right? Things that cannot be controlled. Things that, um, as Jesus says in John 3, 8, um, the spirit blows where it wants to, right? 
Um, and that's kind of become my emblematic verse uh, lately. If you go to my Facebook page, it's actually up there in Greek. Uh, uh, so uh, these sort of, that's fluidity, focus on change, transformation, and um, becoming. Um, and then other things that might uh, intersect with queer experience more generally. Um, I don't know, Katie, if you know that, you know, I'm working on uh, reading the epistles of the Hebrews from a trans perspective. Um, and I'm starting with the passage on, and it says, Abraham came out into. I'm like, well, that's a weird and very awkward <laughs> phrasing for an otherwise very polished Greek text. Um, why the awkwardness? And I actually passed this around to some other Hebrew scholars. They're like, I never noticed this before. I'm like, I guess you had to be trans to see it. Um, <laughs> I'm sure other people have seen it who are very careful, probably a German scholar of some sort from <laughs> like the mid 20th century. Um, Deep in a footnote somewhere on some page. Yeah, it's somewhere. Um, and spiraling out from there, um, sort of people, cis people tend to refer to transition as a journey. I don't hear many trans people call it that, but it's still something that's there. It's an old term uh, that was used mid to late 20th century for, uh, that trans people use. And it, it became very popular among the general population. But most trans people, I, I just don't hear most of them use it. Maybe some do talk about their gender journey. Uh, so the journey metaphor in Hebrews might be a good resonating place for at least some maybe older <laughs> elder trans um, reading. Um, and so I've just been looking through the image of God part, that we are all in the image of God, not just some of us. That's right. Just That's right. resonates with trans people and resonates with anybody who's been excluded historically. Uh, and so I think a lot of trans work is automatically intersectional we're not trying to replace queer work we're not trying to replace feminist work or womanist work we are working alongside right um and so i think we can all engage with each other um, for that so these are just some things i'm just starting out on this i've written one essay completely that's <laughs> <laughs> on this but i'm working on some more like i said uh, Hebrews, which is a very traditionally, um, uh, there's there's just like a lot of arguments in Hebrew scholarship that are just going over the same things over and over again. I'm like, well, let's talk about something different. Let's read Hebrews from a trans perspective and see what happens. And maybe nothing will happen, but maybe something will. Um, and the chair of the Hebrews group, Madison Pierce, uh, reached out to me to do that. Um, and uh, she's been a great ally. Um and then I couldn't help with my Pentecostal background, going back to the Holy Spirit. I think that's awesome. Um, being that this this series is called Too Fab for Florida, and I think somebody probably would hear you say something like reading the Bible from a trans perspective and totally just lose their whole shit. You know what I'm saying? It's like, <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> What does that even mean, read the Bible from a trans, you know what I'm saying? You don't even believe in the Bible. You know, you know how people are. And as, side note, this is going to be totally off topic. This is a little bird walk. You know, what do they call that dark voice? Y'all ever seen the memes that say dark Kermit and it, it has, you know, like when you're talking about the body morphing this, my mind was like, body, yaddy, yaddy. I was like, December, focus, focus. We're being serious right now. But <laughs> I had to bring that up. And there's so much about the human body that's so amazing. And um, even me, I'm growing in my thoughts. I'm evolving in my thoughts around the LGBTQI plus uh, experience as a person who used to pastor for 10 years and, and, and was raised up as a Jehovah's Witness and then non-Baptist and then non-denominational. And I'm even evolving in my thought process, but this is called Two Fat Before. So I have a question for you. If you bumped into Ron DeSantis <laughs> in a place where that, you know, is highly religious, highly judgmental, and where they're actively um, implementing laws and making it harder for people like you to live, move, and have your being, what would you say? Or would you just oh. punch him in the throat? Uh, no, I'm not really a violent person. Um, <clears throat> in fact, people, that's one of the things like other boys thought was weird about me is like, why aren't you wanting to hit people? I'm like, why would I want to hit people? Why do I want to wrestle? It doesn't make any sense to me. 
Um, I, I think it depends on if there are other queer or trans people within earshot. Because if I were speaking truth to power, I'm not expecting power to change their mind. But I would want to give the people in earshot a word of encouragement, right? And so if I spoke to the governor of Florida um, or anybody else who happens to be doing things like this in Tennessee, Texas, Montana, um, Florida's not alone, but they're just the worst. Um, and I knew there was maybe a religious person in earshot who might be struggling with these issues personally, I would say, blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. For we are the prophets of possibility. We pull back the veil that we have all been persecuted by, not just trans people, of the gender binary. It's an illusion. It's an illusion that so many people have given up so much to uphold. So what have you given up to uphold this illusion? What have you suppressed to that you wanted to do, but you couldn't do because girls don't do that or boys don't do that. What did you give up? And when you've bought into the illusion and you've given up so much for this illusion, when somebody comes along and says, look, this isn't actually real or it's real because we've made it real, right? But it doesn't have to be this way. There are possible other ways of living, of being, of loving, then you're going to be attacked because people want you to give up the same things they give up, right? So stand up yeah. and stand up and show people that they didn't have to live that way and that there is another way. And I think I'm actually kind of paraphrasing now Alok Vaidmanon, a non-binary activist. And they said that in one um, place that people don't even have the language to name their wound. Mm-hmm. And that kind of like, whoa. Uh, mm-hmm. They don't know that they're bleeding. But they are. Um, and they take it out on us because they have given up on themselves. So it's not for the governor. It's not for the governor. It's for anybody else who's listening. Although I got to say, I think it's a great message to give to the governor because in terms of like giving things up, that man has given up a whole personality. Uh, And so I feel like that message is very relevant to someone who just isn't really a human being. Um, Many, many costs to being Ron DeSantis. So a word for him, whether he's willing to hear it or not. Yeah, I thought that was beautiful. That was one of the best responses we've had to that question in this whole series. That yeah. was a prepared prophetic spirit response. Thank you. Beautiful. <laughs> You're welcome. And thank you for giving me the opportunity. Jada, thanks so much for being here. This has been amazing. Uh, you really are too bad for Florida. Yes. <laughs> Amen. We're honored to have you on the podcast. No, thank you again for inviting me and having me here. I was very reluctant. I've never done a podcast before. This is my first. Oh, and, yeah, pro. Uh, I do have something called voice dysphoria. I, uh, the, the sound of my voice actually triggers my dysphoria, which is awkward for a professor. <laughs> um, uh, and so I'm not going to listen to this. When it <laughs> <back>. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> so listeners, uh, be sure that you get us all of your great comments and pass them on to Jada. Yes, uh, but Jada, where people can find you if they um, if they do want to connect, if that's something that you do. Uh, I mean, I can be found on various social media sites. Um, you can uh, follow me on Instagram or um, Blue Sky. I'm on Blue Sky now. Um, at uh, let's see, I'm at Jada Rising for both of those is my usual tag. Um, I don't usually use my last name on social media. Smart. Um, so you won't be able to find me if you Google me by name. But if you put at Jada Rising, you'll be able to find me. Um, and then I do have a blog that I never really post, I rarely ever post on, but you can find me through that. And that is actually a pre-transition blog, but I've kept it up and it's called antiquitopia.wordpress.com. Uh, That's awesome. And for those listening, Jada is spelled J-A-E-D-A. That's correct. J-A-E-D-A. It's a little different. Jada Rising. <laughs> awesome. Oh yeah, that was really great. Thank mm-hmm. you so much. Jada's too fabulous for Florida. Absolutely. That was amazing. Absolutely. Love I, love I admire the journey. Mm-hmm. Yes. And the courage. Yeah. Yeah. Pentecostals coming on over one by one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we need them. Um, the good ones. So if you are... Uh, Abel, it would make such a difference to us if you would take a moment to rate and review the show wherever it is you're listening to it. It is how people like you will find people like us. We want to know what you think about Jada, about being too fab for Florida. Come and tell us about it in our Facebook group. This is a free group. Just type into the little search bar, Heresy After Hours. It's really fun. We've got several thousand heretics in there now. We talk, we converse, we support, um, we kvetch all together. So tell us what you think about the episodes. Join us in Heresy After Hours, and we will see you there. Keith, you looked alarmed at my use of the word kvetch. No, I actually... I don't even know if I registered that. <laughs> I was looking alarmed about something else. Something else. Probably something else. <laughs>